Moses. Well, not altogether an unknown Bible character. In fact, Moses weaves his way through four books of the Old Testament. But I want to think about who he is, how he grows from that infant in the bulrushes or the reeds that Kerry was just telling us about, to the man who answers the call to liberate his people from slavery, and particularly about the relationships that shape his life. The story invites us to think about identity, Moses's, God's and ours. A lot of the way I'm going to let the story speak for itself, and I hope it will connect with yours. We will follow Moses from his birth to the curious incident of the burning bush. So Moses' mother, in desperation, in a desperate situation where his babies are being slaughtered, lines the basket with bitumen and pitch and puts her baby, floats it gently on the Nile, fairly well hidden, not too, to be taken away too quickly, and his sister watches. She turns and walks away. There's a plan, isn't there? A plan which is actually a hope against all plausible expectation. And perhaps the hope that the young girl is the better person, perhaps, to be able to push something forward than someone who is obviously the mother. Their feelings we guess at. They're contained in action. But Pharaoh's daughter shows her. She takes pity on him. And her compassion, well, he's crying. That's the thing. It's very hard to ignore a baby crying, isn't it? It's designed for that. But her, her compassion crosses the cruel boundaries that she, she knows and she's pro- perhaps quite used to in her life. She takes him as her son and names him Moses. And a girl is ready. Can I get you a nurse? have come to Egypt as immigrants and they've been welcomed and they've thrived. They've come fleeing from famine. But now they've become resented. They've been too successful. There are too many of them. They've been enslaved and now they are feared and their sons are being killed. But Moses will be breastfed and weaned by his own mother in the house of his birth people with his sister beside him. A sense of immeasurable and unimaginable blessing falls on me as I hear that story again. There's a fairy tale wisdom and yet there's a reality. The princess says, yeah, take the child and nurse it for me. I'll give you the wages. He grows and the mother takes him to Pharaoh's daughter, who keeps her promise and receives him as a son. How old is he? Well, I imagine him running around talking. I think so. He experiences two cultures as a child. The Bible passes over his early years at home and in the palace, and we next meet him as a young man. He has become conscious of the difference between him and those who have educated him, the life he's been prepared for, and those he lives with in the world of the, of the palace. 
He's the adopted son in a privileged world. He knows what he owes to his Egyptian mother. Actually, there's only one other person in the Bible, I think, who remembers her in the New Testament. And um, it's uh, in the, the letter to the Hebrews, a wonderful chapter about what all the great patriarchs do by faith. In there is Moses, who leaves his Egyptian mother and reminds us how important she was. She is, but he has another belonging. And so it grows in him. And one day he goes out of the palace and he looks, he watches the forced labor of the people. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. And seeing no one around, he killed the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. This child, once so blessed, has ripened into grief and anger. When I was thinking about talking to you about this, I remembered the character uh, Saladin Chancha in the Satanic Verses. Rushdie tells how he's sent from India as a young young chap, uh, a boy, I suppose, and lands in an English boarding school. There are some adjustments in his throat that affect his vowels, and at breakfast he is confronted with the kipper. He is appalled, but he gets it down, bones and all, with great, great difficulty. And it's stayed as an abiding image with me. That choking in the throat is the difficulty of living with two or more identities, both of which have powerful pulls. Moses goes out of the palace world by himself to see his birth people. He kills the Egyptian and he thinks he's safe and he goes back home. His conflicting feelings have suddenly burst out in violence, but he hasn't got a plan. Then, when he went out the next day, he he saw two Hebrews fighting. And taking a view that one of them was in the wrong, he said, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And gets an answer. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me the way you killed that Egyptian? It's menacing. There's an implication that they may know that he actually doesn't fully belong where he is, I think. Do you mean to kill me the way you killed that Egyptian? The thing is known. And Moses is very afraid. Pharaoh hears of it and decides to kill him. But he gets away to the land of Midian and he sits down by a well. And here we get one of those little, lovely little um, Old Testament marriage stories. The women come down to the water, as once before, by the Nile. The priest of Midian's seven daughters. They've brought troughs with them. They've come to to get water from the well and fill their troughs, and they've got their animals there. (laughs) Some shepherds come along to chase them away. And, you know, quick on the draw, again, Moses jumps up and clears these shepherds away and helps these young women to water their flocks. They get home and their father says, how did you do all that so quickly? And they say, an Egyptian, notice that, an Egyptian chased the shepherds and helped us with the flocks. 
Hmm, thinks the priest with seven daughters. Where is he? Why did you leave him? Bring him back for a meal. So Moses agrees to work for him and marries his daughter, Zipporah. And they have two sons. He has a new life with a third people, the people of Midian, and with prospects where there is no male heir. Things seem settled. And then, one day, he takes his father-in-law's flocks out across the wilderness, all the way across, and up to Horeb, the mountain of God. There he catches sight of something, just in, maybe in peripheral vision. It's a bush that has been set alight by an angel. It burns and burns without burning up. And he says, I must turn and look at this sight. When God saw that he had turned to see, he called him, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Here I am is a classic answer of willingness. It's a kind of a yes, I'm here at your service. It's, it's what, when Mary, when she's called, remember she says, behold, look at me, I'm standing here, present, the handmaid of the Lord. Here I am. So it's a sort of acceptance straight away. Here I am, says Moses, and God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I have seen the misery of my people. I heard their cry. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. I've seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come. I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. God sees the suffering of the people, communities and individuals. Maybe you're thinking about some people now who are in that place. Maybe it's you today. God hears your cry. God hears our cry and challenges us. I've come down to deliver my people, and I'm sending you. I've come down to deliver them, but I'm sending you. Who am I to go to Pharaoh? I will be with you, Moses. In this curious thing about Moses, the question he asks, he asks God to tell him his name. If I come to the Israelites, and say, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they say, what's his name? What am I going to say? Say, I am who I am. Say, I am sent you. I am the life, the center of life. Moses has come to another critical point in his life. He still has a long way to go, but he's come a long way already. He begins life independence, as we all do. His crying serves him well. He's launched by those who come before him. And they win him back and are his first community. And they have to let him go. We can connect with his rebellion against the palace life he's part of. Up to a point, 
every young person will at a certain time in life. But this also, he, he's casting off an imposed cultural identity. The politics of his situation shape his action. He sees the suffering of his people with a changed sense of who he is. And when I was thinking about this, it, I thought about the aftermath of the Second Gulf War and on the many young people among us in our own country whose sense of identity was shaken by that. And some of them who, like Moses, did something very rash. Moses reclaims an identity which he has been deprived of. And in the process, maybe half-consciously, he, he, does, he, does he makes that mistake that actually liberates you by putting you into greater danger. He falls on his feet in Midian. But this next change, the one we've just been looking at, the, the incident, the burning bush, the encounter with God, is in a way negotiated. He's made his way through the desert to Horeb, to the mountain of God. He has given himself space. He sees the fire. He doesn't know that God is calling him, but he turns aside. He has a new life, but it isn't insulating him from the possibility of change. And it's so interesting to see that God, it's when God sees him turn that he calls his name Moses. So he now has, and he also, he also gets another concession for God. He says, you know, who am I to, to go to the palace? And I'm not a speaker, I'm not a good speaker. And God says, okay, your brother Aaron can be your spokesperson. And I think the main thing here, of course, is God saying, I will be with you. I will be with you. So he has agency, he has decision making. He recognises that he can answer this call, but he can't do it on his own. And I think that's a kind of a newer understanding of dependency from the dependency of the, of the child. We are dependent. We need it on others and on God to be able to fulfil everything that we are called to do. Moses' call from God connects to the story that is already written on his heart which is his own life experience. And so it is with us. God's call touches what we can barely imagine, yet most desire. It's risky. God has come down and is sending us. God is still saying, I have seen your misery. I have heard your cry. I will be with you. As James puts it, God doesn't manipulate. When we come near to God, God comes near to us. Indeed, God is near to us now. <laughs>